In an essay called The Visited Planet, Philip Yancey observes something that I have observed as well. And it's what you find out when you sort through Christmas cards. When you sort through Christmas cards, there's a certain kind of image, images that are extremely popular and, and symbols that have made their way into our Christmas celebration. Probably the most popular one that symbolizes Christmas for most of us is something like a new, like picture a New England town covered in snow and maybe a horse-drawn sleigh or two. That's, that's a really popular Courier and Ives type Christmas card, and we love those. Or there's, you know, the little animals um, frolicking around in the snow under the Christmas tree. Or angels have become extremely popular. Now, not the kind of angels that we see described in Scripture. These are more like these cuddly, cute type that would never, ever, ever have to say upon entering a room, fear not. <laughs> They're really popular. And even the religious cards, even the religious, the, the, the cards that seem to depict something that's not secular but actually religious, don't the characters of the Holy Family, aren't they, don't they seem to be portrayed in a certain way? Let me, and, and, and think about it for a moment. Think about how they're portrayed. One, there's always like this calm, serene look on their faces. And they almost always have this little gold orb, like a halo, hovering right over their head. The words inside, popular words, love, peace, goodwill, cheer, warmth, good things. I, I, I want those things at Christmas. I want to feel those things. I'm extremely nostalgic. My Frank Sinatra album has already been playing. It starts on Thanksgiving Day for me. And I love it. It makes me feel a certain way. But when I read the gospel accounts of Christmas, I hear a different tone. I feel a different flavor than what I read in and feel and hear in most Hallmark cards. It feels more scary. It feels more disruptive. There's a certain cheeriness to the cards and a certain starkness to the Gospels. Do you know what I'm saying? Or am I saying something that you don't know, that you don't see? I'm asking you to, re to recall what I just 
read there. And I'm asking you if you were tasked to graphically design a Christmas card based on what we just read here, which is the story of the first Christmas, what would you put on there? Look at how Luke tells it. This is Luke writing this. It says that it wasn't, it doesn't seem like when the angels showed up, what they would typically picture at the annunciation or the announcement of the angel to Mary is Mary standing there calmly with a halo around her head receiving the news. You know, oh, this is wonderful. Why'd he pick me? This is incredible. It doesn't say that. Did you see what it said? She was greatly troubled. She wasn't even just troubled. She was greatly troubled. Have you ever been greatly troubled? How would you draw yourself on a Christmas card if you were greatly troubled? How would people know that you were greatly troubled? Not only was she greatly troubled, it says the angel had to tell her not to be afraid. Why would he tell her not to be afraid? Because she was afraid. And while the angel, Gabriel, is making this sublime pronouncement about this child that she's going to bear, the son of the Most High, whose kingdom will never end, Mary had something more mundane on her mind. How's this going to happen? I'm a virgin. You probably remember, like I do, girls getting pregnant in high school. Do you remember that? I remember it vividly I won't say their last names but I remember their first and last name and high school's been a while ago for me I remember Susan I remember seeing her in study hall I remember Lori and the Shame and the guilt and the, just everybody whispering. You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you been there? Do you know what I'm talking about? You walk into the room and everybody stops talking. Some of our sins trail behind us. Some of our sins go right out in front of us. Right out. Those girls' sins were no worse than the rest of us. But they had such conspicuous consequences. They couldn't hide their active passion sticking out from their abdomen. And where were the fathers? I can't name them. Who were they? Where are they at? Why does she have to suffer but he's nowhere to be found? 
And eventually a child emerged which changed every hour of every day for the rest of their lives. And I'm saying no wonder Mary felt greatly troubled and afraid. Similar shame and consequences without the act of passion. In the U.S., millions of teenage girls get pregnant. Mary's predicament has lost its force. But in a closely knit Jewish community in, first, in the first century, the news that Gabriel brought was not entirely welcome. Are you feeling me? This is, we're trying to find the simple beauty in a very shocking tale. Mary, you get this, would have been regarded as a lawbreaker. We, 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 we don't have any category for this, church. Friends, we don't have a category for, for uh, getting pregnant without uh, being married and, and, and that being considered lawbreaking. We don't have any category for that. An engaged woman, a betrothed woman, who became pregnant as an adulteress was subject to the law. Do you know what the law called for? Stoning. You read your Bibles. Death. Man, one thing that's happening for me as I read this story is I, Joseph is a heck of a guy. I love this guy. He tries to take the noble road, the high road. And the scripture tells us in Matthew that he tries to divorce her quietly rather than press charges, which would have been his right. Until an angel comes to correct Joseph's perception of betrayal. Then Luke tells of Mary rushing off to the one person that she felt in the world could understand her. Who could ever understand her? We're told it's a relative, Elizabeth, much older. Mary, in her uh, teenage years, this, this woman, Elizabeth, which we know from the beginning of Luke 1, has become pregnant in a miraculous way as well. And through an annunciation, through an angel's appearance to her husband. She's barren. She's, she's old now. And she miraculously, according to the angel's pronouncement, becomes pregnant in her old age, barren womb. Never had a kid before. So Mary remembers what's happened with her and she thinks I, I, that there's maybe at least one person in this world that could understand what I'm going through. And so she heads to Elizabeth's. But the scene highlights the contrast between the two women. One of them was celebrated. You're pregnant. When you never thought, you never thought you would have a kid. You're, you're barren, you're old. And God has seen to it to give you a child. Mary hides the shame of her miracle. 
John the Baptist, born six months before Jesus, to incredible celebration. A village chorus. Can you imagine this? We didn't get that. We didn't get the village chorus when we brought the kids home. But you imagine a village chorus. You know, people singing in celebration. She had all kinds of people to assist her with the birth process, midwives, uh, great celebration, relatives gathered around. Not Jesus. Not Jesus, six months later, born far from home. Not even born into his home. No midwives, no extended family, just Mary and Joseph in a stable, no village chorus. Check this out. The census is the reason they traveled, right? The Roman census that Caesar Augustus had decreed. It was only necessary for the male head of household to go and to participate in the census. Why would you take a woman who is nine months pregnant on that journey on a donkey to be counted in the census if it wasn't necessary? You do it to spare her the pain and ridicule of being by herself at home, knowing that if she does deliver, there ain't nobody in the village that's going to give her a lick of help. We got to obey the law. We're going to go do the census, and you're coming with me because I care about you, because I love you. And then he delivers the baby. Nine months of awkward explanations, lingering scandal. God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his interests. Have you ever considered that? This is my prayer. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would so come upon us right now that as I'm sharing the starkness of the reality of the true Christmas, that somehow you would find great joy in this. It's coming. Why would God arrange it this way? If I had the power to arrange my entry, I would never arrange it this way. If I was the Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, I would arrange it in a way that you would celebrate me upon my arrival. Jesus avoids the charge of favoritism. When Jesus, the Son of God, became a human He played by the rules. Harsh, harsh, harsh rules. Small towns don't treat kindly young bastards born with questionable fatherhood. Listen to this quote. Malcolm Muggeridge what a name. 
Malcolm observed that in our day, with family planning clinics offering convenient ways to correct mistakes that might disgrace a family name, it is, in point of fact, extremely improbable. Listen to what he says here. It's extremely improbable under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. He's saying in our day. Under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talking of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, our generation, needing a Savior more, perhaps, than any other generation that has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. These are the circumstances. Jesus didn't come in a Hallmark Christmas kind of way. Jesus didn't come in a Thomas Kincaid painting. He came to a broken world. He entered into its brokenness. He came to real people with real lives, with real troubles, with real shame and guilt. He left his throne of glory and came to save us. What we're trying to do this Christmas is to clear away the clutter so that we can see the simple beauty that Christmas is telling us that we could never get to God on our own. But God came to get us. And he played by harsh rules in order to rescue us from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of Kings. This is our Savior, church. If you get this, then you get Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you don't get this, then the best Christmas can offer you is is some happy, nostalgic-feeling music, some presents, some, some good food, and you gain a little weight. Or a lot of weight. Now, imagine for a moment how you might respond if you were Mary. Let me just tell you, let me just back up and show you that what's happening here, we're going to see Mary's response, but it's in contrast to the response of someone else who's already been talked about in chapter 1. We didn't read about it today, but the story goes of Zechariah. The angel Gabriel appeared to him as well. Now, he's a religious leader. He's a pastor. He's the high priest. The angel announces to him that a miracle is going to take place, and it's actually less less. Uh, incredible, if you will, than the miracle that, that has just been announced to Mary, because at least he's married. And so she, the angel announces this to Zechariah, and Zechariah, we know, if you've ever heard the story, doesn't believe the angel. And so the angel says, you don't believe, so we're going to make you mute for nine months until it happens, and then I'll, until the baby is born, and then I'll open your mouth again. Mary, not a, not, no religious studies, 
Not a, not a priest, not a religious leader in the community, probably 14, 15 years old, poor girl. And the same angel appears to her. And how does she respond? It's in stark contrast to Zechariah. Look at what it says. Verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. That's what the angel ends. He ends by saying, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be so to me according to your word. She heard the angel out. She pondered the consequences and replied, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it happen to me as you have said. Let it be to me according to your word. Philip Yancey, I mentioned in the beginning of his essay, he points out that often a work of God comes with two edges. If you've had a work of God in your life, you've probably experienced it coming with two edges. What are the two edges? Great joy and great pain. Great, a great work of God is often accompanied by great joy and great pain. In other words, Following Jesus is the happiest, most joyful decision you could ever make in your life that is also accompanied with denial of self, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Mary embraced the great joy of 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 Jesus, and she embraced the great pain that it would cost her. Yancey points out that Mary is the first person in the Bible to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost. She's the first disciple. If you skip a little forward, you like to skip ahead in your reading? Skip ahead to verse 46. And Mary said, listen to how she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. This is a woman who's filled with joy, but who is simultaneously embracing the cost of following Jesus. If you think that you will follow Jesus and it won't cost you anything, you're not following the real Jesus. But we're saying, though, that if you get Jesus and you lose everything else, you have everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Mary really believes that. How about you? Will you accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of what it would cost you, or what it does cost you, or what it will cost you? Will you believe in him and have life in his name? You'll find that the world's peace doesn't compare to the peace of God. You may find that your best Christmas is not one that could ever be depicted on a Hallmark Christmas card, but where you find eternal joy. I love in Gabe's story how he points out that all of them would say their best Christmas 
was not the way you would think it would be described. Talk about an uncluttered Christmas at a rehab center. Nothing. Sitting at school desks. Singing. Celebrating. I just saw a, 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 a video someone sent me of, of men that are uh, on life. They're on death. They're, they're, they're serving a life sentence. They're, none of them are going to get out of prison. And they are worshiping to songs that we sing on Sunday morning. And you ought to see these guys worshiping. I mean, their faces are filled with joy. And I thought, man, talk about Christmas uncluttered. They got nothing. They've got nothing. And the joy in their hearts that's coming out into their faces is the joy of knowing Christ, him crucified and resurrected in order to save them. Who's happier? Could it be that those men serving a life sentence are happier than some people in Chester County who will spend five, ten thousand dollars this Christmas and feel empty inside? Is that possible? Could that be? How could that be? When you find the real simple beauty of Christmas, that's how it can be. There's nothing wrong. I'm pastoring a group of people from Chester County, one of the wealthiest counties in the nation. There's nothing wrong with God's blessed you. God's been kind to you. God's been good to you. What I'm saying, though, is don't put your, your, don't root your happiness in the things that he's given you. Root your happiness in him. Find your happiness in him. There's nothing wrong with having God's been kind to many of us. Some have worked hard to receive great blessing. Just don't get the priority wrong. Go enjoy what God has given you. Application and then we'll close. Let me ask the band to return. Three ideas. We, we had this idea of how can we, this is the question we're going to put in every sermon. At the end, we're going to ask this question. How could we unclutter our lives and make room for Jesus this Christmas? So it's like, what, what simple step could we make to unclutter and make room for Jesus? I've got th- we've got three practical steps for you. I'm going to mention them now. You'll get them in the weekly email. You'll be getting them in the, the weekly liturgy that we send out. Every week. But I'm going to mention them. Three things. One is, we created, Gabe actually created a Christmas uncluttered playlist on Spotify. We're going to send you the link. I'd encourage you to listen to it because what he's done is he's built some, he's built a playlist that actually puts Jesus into our minds. And mix it. So that doesn't mean you can't listen to Frank Sinatra, that you can't listen to Justin Bieber's Christmas, or you can't, you know, I'm not saying that. Listen to it. But every once in a while, every once in a while, slip this playlist in and allow it 
to, to take your focus off of temporary things and to put them on our eternal Jesus who came to get us when we could never get to him ourselves. We've created that for you. Now, sometimes when people create playlists, I'm not a fan of this. When people create playlists, they create like these seven-hour playlists. I'm not a fan. It's too much. This one's like an hour, right? Two of the songs are like 10 minutes long, so we couldn't make it like a 45-minute playlist. But it, it's shorter. You Just let it spin. Let it spin for an hour and then go back into Mix it in. All right? Let it be part of the sounds of Christmas. That's one of the ways you can unclutter and put and find room and make room for Jesus and in the simple beauty of Christmas. Another thing, Jason already mentioned it. We've got a number of resources on the website. We've got an Advent resources page. You can go right to our website. You can see it right there. We've got a number of resources. You can get on Amazon and have one of those books delivered to you by the end of the day if you're willing to pay $2.99. If you want it for free, just wait 24 hours. Even we can wait that long, right? So get one of those resources by December 1st and just simply start using it. If you're not doing devotions right now, five minutes a day, that's all you got through the, through the Christmas season. I guarantee you, you'll, it'll refresh your soul and you'll find room. You'll declutter and find room in your heart for, for time, making room for Jesus. If you're a family with young kids, that can be hard. Five minutes at dinner. Do it uh, include it in something that you already do. Don't feel like, okay, we got this big devotional. Dad's going to dress up as Santa Claus every night. And, and no, you don't have to do it like that. Just, just you eat together at some point every day. Find a time, grab the little devotional, five minutes. Kids are crying or squawking just like they are in the service right you know, this morning. So what? The kids are crying. The kids are running around. So what? Read it and pray and then call it done. Make room for Jesus. The last thing is another practical idea. A lot of you, how many of you already decorated your homes for Christmas? I'm surprised at this. Wow. You guys are motoring. Even before Thanksgiving? Dang. We usually do the, like the weekend after. But you guys are on it. I'm impressed. If you've already done your decorating, which is a good percentage of you, some of you are still going to do some decorating, think about your home decor, and is there anything that you could do that would be a reminder of Christ and the simple beauty that he offers at Christmas? So, so one of the things I'm thinking about is when we decorate the tree, I water it every morning. I, I try to keep it you know, with some water, keep it moisturized. So, so I'm going to, every day, since I know I'm going to do that anyway, I want to locate an ornament somewhere on the tree that'll make me think about Jesus. And then I'm going to pray while I water the tree. Take me two minutes. I'm keeping Jesus, trying to keep Jesus at the center. What could you do? Those are the applications. Listen, when the Jesuit missionary... Matteo Ricci went to China in the 16th century. He brought some religious art with him. And he brought religious art because he wanted to depict the Christian story to people that didn't know it. And so these Chinese people readily accepted the picture, the portrait of the Virgin Mary holding Jesus. That was, that was entirely acceptable to them. But then when he showed in the picture of this young man hanging on the cross executed 
And then he tried to tell them that the baby that the virgin was holding was him. They, they were horrified. There's no way. We, we, we will not accept that. We don't accept that. So they ended up being comfortable. They actually desired to worship Mary, but they could never find it in themselves to worship the man that was hanging on the cross. We do the same thing. We prefer a different picture of Christmas than the one that the Scriptures hold. We prefer a mellow, domesticated holiday purged of any supernatural, purged of any scandal, purged of any starkness. We purge from it any reminder of how the story began in Bethlehem and how it ended in Calvary. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt to a cross where for our sake he died. God rolled the tomb away, raised Jesus from the dead, and by faith in his name and in his blood, in his freedom, we are free. For the love of Jesus, who has resurrected us, he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We could never get to God on our own. Jesus came to get us. Praise his name forever. Amen. Amen.